Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And this is Dylan. And I'm Nico. And goddamn, do we hope you survive the experience. Because today isn't just any experience. No, no, no. Today is an uncanny experience of dazzling proportion. The most important thing to remember when you're talking about the X-Men is that they're an inclusive, diverse, look at a found family. And the only true thing that binds them together is their love of each other. The X-Men frequently accept non-mutants into their home, just as they did recently with Carol Danvers in the pages of Uncanny. And it makes sense that the defining fact of the X-Men is found family, not their mutancy. It's in that regard that it was important to me that X's for podcast be reflective of that idea of found family and people who came together because of a shared love. So as much as I love that Jonah and I are... Jonah, how many episodes do we do a month now? Like 83? Uh, Sounds about right. Yeah, as much as I love that, it was so important to get another strong, smart voice that I knew had something to say about the X-Men on this show. And it is for that reason I am so excited to welcome to the show to help us cover Dazzler and the new Defenders, Warpath Dylan. Hi, everybody. You know, it's been great because you've snuck onto the show here and there in little ways, and it just felt right that you would come on to talk about Dazzler. And I wanted to make sure that we kind of had all different kinds of comic fans. Jonah, I think you read your first X-Men comic when you were 21, just last year, right? Correct. I started with Grant Morrison's new X-Men under your recommendation, and I have been hooked ever since. You know, I love that you brought up Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Just, it is one of my all-time favorite runs. It's that, it's Cable, the Ascani run by Jeff Loeb. It's the major Excaliburs, so Claremont, Davis, Ellis, and, you know, of course, Claremont's uncanny, obviously. But E is for Extinction, the first arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, is titled such because it's meant to be a contradiction of the ideas that had dominated the X-Men for so long, this very kitschy sense of X is for Extinction, X is for Extermination, and E is for Extinction was meant to turn the X-Men on their heads. and. That's why we've called this X's for Podcast. It's meant to be a loving homage. So Dylan, what was your first X-Men comic? My first one was X-Men Unlimited number one by Pachalo and Scott Lobdell. Oh, that's, oh man, you know, that's, uh, you just said a magic word. Oh, <laughs> you just said one of the magic words. Uh, Chris Pachalo's work throughout the 90s and then the 2000s, he continuously reinvents usage of page space. I only wish we were at his era of Generation X right now so that we could talk about how beautifully he is a master of storytelling. So, you know, I know my favorite runs, and I know that Jonah's favorite runs are New X-Men and so far Claremont's X-Men. Do you have any favorite runs, Dylan? 
mine are, of course, Claremont, like you slightly just mentioned. I absolutely love everything at the beginning of Generation X. Oh, that's such a great era with all the Monet stuff and the M stuff. And Lobdell was just really somewhere powerful in his storytelling at that point. He was really a master of his craft and he was casting stories that were bold and daring and different. And it was everything I love about the X-Men. It never bothered me that it was this hyper 90s take on it because in so many ways, the New Mutants is a hyper 80s take. And I just cannot wait to get to all of that. And it's, it's just been really exciting. You know, I feel like one of the things that has been so interesting about the X-Men is listening to how the narrative voices have evolved over time. Dylan, have you read the Claremont era starting with Giant Sized up through this point before? I have. So you're familiar with where the characters are around the Dark Phoenix saga where we're picking Correct. things up. Yes. It's terrific. I love that this is three people with three very different experiences. And I really feel like this is the best way to talk about one Miss Allison Blair. To give our readers a little bit of a reminder on exactly who the Dazzler is, Dazzler was created to be a product tie-in. The idea was they could create a toy that could also sell records. And she was positioned in Marvel Comics to become the next big thing. Of course, she unfortunately became a punchline for many years before being treated with the respect she deserved. I don't want to read too deeply into why she lacked that kind of respect. I wonder if it's the same sort of reason that Northstar was always cast aside. That sort of, oh, that's one of the gay characters. While Dazzler herself is not a lesbian, Dazzler has a very vocal, very powerful gay male fan base. <laughs> like, Dazzler is like the honorary Grand Marshal of every X-Men Pride parade. So As she should I, be. She should be. <laughs> I am so excited to go through this work. Dylan, have you ever read Dazzler's solo book before? I did a long time ago, but I'm refreshing myself now. Same, same. I haven't read it in some number of years. But of course, before we can get to Dazzler's solo book, we have a number of things to cover first. Today's reading list includes Classic X-Men 37 and 38 from September and October of 1989, our last entries from the Classic X-Men series. In the former, by Fabian Nicieza and Rick Leonardi, we see a private night in the life of Allison Blair with a hint of irony. The latter story, by series regular writer Anne Nascenti, with art by Kyle Baker, sees the Daz become the unwitting victim of a study in fear. From there, we'll be jumping back to 1981 to take a look at Fantastic Four 217, featuring writing by Bill Mantlow and art by John Byrne and Joe Sinat, based on a plot suggestion by Marv Wolfman, where Dazzler spends a little time getting to know Johnny Storm in, like, a page and a half of the book. Then, We'll be looking to Amazing Spider-Man 203, written by title editor Marv Wolfman, featuring a huge art team. Keith Poldard on pencils, Mike Esposito and friends on ink, with Frank Miller and Jim Mooney on cover work, in which Spider-Man villain Lazarus returns to life, possessing Dazzler, sending Spidey on a chase to defeat one while saving the other. From there, we'll be taking a look at Dazzler 1 and 2 by Tom DeFalco and John Romita Jr., a story where Dazzler finds herself the enemy of the Enchantress, while trying to get her career back on track, guest-starring a good 80% of the Marvel Universe. We'll then be finishing things off with Marvel Team-Up 107 and 108, written by David Micheline and David Kraft, respectively, both with art by Herb Trimp. Dazzler shows up on the last page of the former, leading into an unremarkable rehashing of everything we've already covered with the Dazzler as a character, reading like a fact sheet, 
giving us the same Spidey Dazzler team up for a third time in just four months. This was one of our tougher playlists to get through. I haven't felt this kind of like by a mutant comic in in quite a while. Before we even talk about any of the individual stories, was there a consistent personality for Dazzler anywhere in this for you, Dylan? It seemed like she had a few set ones that she kept going back and forth in, of being strong, independent, and then the damsel in distress. It, it was a bit annoying. Absolutely. Jonah, you've been reading Uncanny where the book is dominated by women like Storm and Jean Grey and Moira running in with a machine gun screaming. Was Dazzler the hero you were looking for her to be here, or was it just Threads of Greatness you saw? Uh, I think Threads of Greatness is a great way to describe Dazzler right now. I think there are so many great ideas they're trying to give her, and so many ways you can take a character like Dazzler, but it feels like uh, too many chefs in one kitchen. Too many people are trying to throw this into a soup, and as Dylan said, she's flip-flopping in personality, and she's not coming off as her own character. She's coming off as a character that just fits the story she happens to be in. And I believe part of that is because so many of Dazzler's earliest stories are stories that Dazzler was inserted into in order to see the character get a lot of exposure. Now, I am personally a very big Dazzler fan. I love Dazzler, particularly when she is under the pencil of Chris Claremont, especially in his early days. I'll even give it up for Dazzler and New Excalibur, way, way, way down the line. But that's another great Dazzler story. And... She is a hero who was always under underappreciated and, I guess, undervalued by the rest of the heroic community. And with early stories like these, it's not hard to see why Dazzler was treated with such little respect. You can't expect fans to give a character respect when the writers won't. It's to that end that I definitely want to start discussing these classics. I do not like either of these classic stories, but let's start with 37 first. 37 definitely read to me like someone who's never been in a band, imagining what it's like to be in a band. It was the most, I'm cool too, wish fulfillment I could have imagined for Dazzler. Not necessarily that that's true of the writer, but that's definitely the air I got from it. Dylan, when you read this, what were your feelings on the story they were trying to craft with Alice? When I was reading it, it just seemed a little bit forced. Like, they were trying to state, hey, we have this really super popular, kind of famous, kind of not famous girl that we want to make into a hero, but she doesn't want to be a hero. And it just kind of seems like the writers were writing against themselves, in a way. That's that's probably... That's... Yeah. I love that. Writing against themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I would describe it. Especially because it had the magic of hindsight. They had the advantage that this was a classic story, so this was years later. By this point, she has already become a superhero and a member of the X-Men. So they get to put all these little jokes in how she's like, I never want to be a hero. It's cute, but it's kind of cloying. I also felt cheated by the disposable nature of the supporting cast in these mutant comics especially the ones by claremont i'm used to the supporting cast being dynamic and powerful and interesting and while i am so grateful for the inclusion and diversity it is important to make sure that you are pushing those boundaries every time you write 
there just wasn't enough character to these characters to justify my interest. Jonah, we've been focusing on a lot of books with really strong character perspective and character narrative. Was it hard stepping into these classics where the side characters were disposable? Yes, and third classic 37, I think, is a fault that um, writers can get into because 37 reads very much as a slice-of-life comic. And when you're going to give us a slice-of-life comic, it's as you said, you have to give us dynamic characters. In slice-of-life, there is very little action, so you're relying on the interest of a character to really hook a reader, and you really want them to get to feel the emotions that they're there in that life. But you're giving us... Dazzler, who doesn't really have much of a personality, and you're giving her us bandmates and her friends who we know nothing about, and when you just have them sitting at a diner in New York at 2 a.m., they're not doing anything, and it doesn't make for interesting reading. So it's really hard to have characters that, these could have been anybody. It literally didn't matter what these characters' names are, because nothing happens. You know what? It's really funny that you should say that because something I've noticed that, you know, we've, we've been together for how many years now? And I guess I didn't know until this podcast that we've been doing together, you really love Slice of Life. And I can tell because of how critical you are when Slice of Life is mishandled as a genre. And I feel like that's really interesting. And I look forward to the X-Men paying that off for you because you will get to some really excellent stories in that vein. I'm also glad that you brought up that this takes place in New York City because I very definitely had a problem with some of the writing. On page five of this story, one of the lines is, uh, how can anybody be sad on the Brooklyn Bridge? Are, I Have you ever fucking been on the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> I'm sad on the Brooklyn Bridge all the fucking time. Are you kidding me? And that this was definitely not written by somebody in a band. I thought it was... So silly that next time you do a 10-minute drum solo, if that guy did a 10-minute drum solo, you would have shut off the fucking PA. This whole story is written by somebody with imposter syndrome. I mean, don't get me wrong, Fabian E.C. as it goes on to write Cable and Deadpool, which is like one of the most important books in my life. But, ugh, I just got so mad over and over. And there's all that weird, she's hanging on to the bumper like she's Marty fucking McFly. Dazzler deserved so much better than 37. Don't drink and drive, kids. <laughs> yeah, but you... <laughs> what? That was such a che- cheesy part. Absolutely. And cheesy is one thing. And I guess in a lot of ways, with the exception of the flasher joke on page six, which that flasher joke maybe is a little bit New York, although it comes off a little too rosy, a little too Kimmy Schmidt. She doesn't know why the guy's wearing the raincoat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, eh. But classic 37 didn't smack of the kind of honest-to-God misogyny that I was overwhelmed by running through this Dazzler narrative. While there are several places they attempt to give Dazzler agency and perspective, Classic 38 is a tremendous example of everything wrong with this era. This large elevator operator just sexually harasses the hell out of Dazzler. I'm very glad it was written by a woman. And not only am I glad it was written by a woman, it was written by a woman who is at the top of her game at this point in her career. And Nascenti was right around this time heading over to Daredevil with John Romita Jr. to do what is considered one of the greatest ever runs on Daredevil, introducing Typhoid Mary. And if Anne Nascenti says that this is what it's like to be a woman, then this is what it's like to be a woman. And thank God the X-Men finally hired a woman to write these women characters 
because as much as it's important to step outside of your own experience and write characters from perspectives you have researched and come to understand, it's also very important to let people tell their own stories. I completely I do agree. not fault. Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I completely agree. I was, uh, when I read 38, again, this time around, uh, as I started to read it, I instantly went back to the cover because I wanted to make sure that a woman wrote this because I was like, uh, but then once I realized that it was a woman, I felt better about the issue. Absolutely. I think the problem then becomes that this issue isn't the problem. The other narratives written by men where this is a central idea is the problem. Well, frequently the misogyny is going to be what I call incidental misogyny, not that it's any kind of excuse for it, but it's not writers intending to be misogynistic. It's where you have to point out, no, this was problematic, and they have to say, oh my god, I'm so sorry I didn't see it. The Dazzler as Damsel syndrome that populates the other stories is much more problematic for me. I have just a handful of problems with Dazzler under-reacting to this guy. I believe she should be able to take care of herself better than this, but outside of that, she reclaims her agency, she kicks some ass, and she defends herself in the way that is necessary. Jonah, I feel like this tied back to a number of the weirder classics we've covered, like the weird one at the costume party, where it's kind of like, why is this weird violence happening? What was your read on this? You've read so few stories by women at this point, because there just are so few. This is one of the only ones we've had a chance to read that's by a woman, about a woman, where women represent 50% of the characters in the story. This issue reminds me of the one classic we read about Emma in the Hellfire Club in her chess match against mastermind Jason Wingard. It's a heavy-handed topic about women and a perspective about women and issues that women go through written by a woman. And it's sometimes, I guess I need to know, what is your drive of putting Dazzler through this story? As a writer and as a woman, you can tell whatever story you need to to expose or bring light to whatever issue you want. But I need to know the purpose. There needs, I feel like there needs to be a purpose. There needs to be a really amazing, excellent reason that you really want to write this story. And I guess I was having a hard time seeing why Dazzler was being put in this situation. Dazzler is a badass, and I completely get that. But I don't know if this is the situation you need to show me her in to tell me that. And I really get what you're trying to say. I feel like this story would be told very differently now. Just a very, very different narrative. Were there any other thoughts either of you had on these classics before we move on to the canon that was released at the time of Dazzler's debut? I have a silly question about issue 38. <laughs> I was really confused by, like, okay, so the whole point of this was she was in an elevator going up to a parking garage. And the classic issue before this and issues after it, why is she going to a parking garage? In this issue, it seems like she has a car, but everywhere else, she's rollerblading all over the city. And this is before things like, you can, like, ride share. Yeah, you know what? That's a really inherent logical flaw in this story. I think that's... Wow. (laughs) Dazzler doesn't have a car. I... I... Well, you know, uh, maybe she parked her roller skates in a spot. Maybe. (laughs) Dazzler, the money situation at Dazzler is really, really interesting because 
They make it seem like she's a broke artist, but she lives in a very nice apartment for a broke artist, and she apparently has a car, or maybe she doesn't, but it's really not consistent, and it just brings weird, as I said, weird inconsistencies that kind of take away from your story. Is she broke, or does she have money? What is it? You can't have both. I agree. And part of the the reductive thing we face with these stories are because they're so focused on selling us a model of Dazzler, a repurposable version of her that can be dropped in like a Barbie or an action figure into whatever story they need, just like any of these heroes, there is no point at which they aren't thinking about how they can just drop the Iron Man Barbie into a story. The idea is how can these characters be repurposed in a way that they are generic enough while still growing so that a reader should be able to jump in at any point. Dazzler is so, uh, the writers of Dazzler are so obsessed with putting her in clubs and making it about music. They forget to flesh out the rest of her story. I think one of the big mistakes is Dazzler was treated like a second-class character from the get. In Fantastic Four 217, I can't believe it, but she only appears in three pages. She appears in three total pages of the issue, and it is not my favorite. A guy kind of hits on her, and Johnny Storm defends her like she can't defend herself, and then Johnny's like, oh, well, you know, hey, Daz, and she's kind of like, um, pass, and then afterwards, she's not like pass, she's like, I was just being flippin' rude because I have to perform on stage, and then they're, like, flirting, and then he just flies away to go help the Fantastic Four. I, I don't I don't think this was that original three-page story. I think Dazzler was shoehorned in to fit a need to further expose the character. Jonah, did you get anything from this Dazzler three-page sequence? No, and it's as you said, I understand why she was making an appearance here, because there are so many teams in New York for Marvel, oh my goodness. And it makes sense if you're going to add a new hero trying to perform in New York that the different teams in New York are going to be exposed to her. That being said, if I was a Fantastic Four reader, and I'm reading 217, and I see this character of Dazzler, Dazzler doesn't make any form of a positive, not really much of a negative either, impression on me that makes me want to read more of her and to figure out who this character is. There's nothing, there's no substance to what she's saying. This could have, you could replace this with any musical performer, not just Dazzler, and it still comes out the exact same story. Dazzler isn't here because she's Dazzler and you need Dazzler in the story. Dazzler's just being, I, I really think you hit the nail on the head. This was absolutely shoehorned in at the last minute. Now, Dylan, I know you've gone back and you've read all this stuff and you're rereading it. And Had this been an issue you caught in your initial read through? I actually probably didn't pay that much attention to Dazzler until later on in X-Men comics. So thinking, rethinking about it, I guess in a way I may have noticed it as she kind of just comes off like a, billboard for a pepsi or something in the background like if i was someone i completely get that yeah if i was someone who was just reading fantastic four comics like jonah said she could be any singer or any female that johnny was hitting on and it wouldn't have made me want to say hey does this girl have her own comic or is she in other comics i want to read her no this was very lackluster and it's as if they knew there was nothing to do with Dazzler in this story. They don't make a whole lot of effort to draw attention to it. 
And ultimately, the next real appearance of Dazzler is her appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 203, which I... uh, Well... Okay, I don't hate this issue. Let me start with that. I don't hate this issue. But I got really annoyed reading it three times. This Dazzler Spider-Man scenario happens so many times in three months. It's insane. But that makes sense because Spider-Man is Marvel's most popular singular hero. And so if you're trying to push a product, put them with Spider-Man. I mean, that was the whole point of Marvel Team-Up. Absolutely. Which is why I'm glad she appears in Marvel Team-Up. But oh my god, she appears in Marvel Team-Up and Spider-Man. And he appears in her series. Oh my god. And then nothing ever happens with them. They don't go anywhere. It's not like they become a couple. It's not like Spider-Dazzler forever. The same story all three times, but in three different books. Absolutely, with varying levels of attractive arts. I think the biggest thing I walked away from this issue with, honestly, I felt this issue was maybe the most misogynistic. There were a few too many times where I felt like Dazzler fainting was making her look way too weak. Dazzler tied up was just a little too, I don't know, anti-woman for me, because there was no reason for her to be tied up like that. Dazzler making a cry face was just, like, really pathetic, and Spidey having to come in and save her when we already know she is a powerful woman with her own agency and her own abilities, this is clearly a story where Dazzler is a victim of her era. Dylan, now I know you're pretty caught up on the Marvel Universe, and, you know, you know what's going on now. Can you even imagine Dazzler now behaving in this way? I cannot. It's like two different characters completely. Uh, After probably the mid-90s, I would say, Dazzler was the hero that everyone wants. But these first few years and decades, especially, like you said, in this issue of her having to hug Spider-Man or lean on him, and uh, (laughs) it's, it's not good. It's not good. And what I find myself most annoyed about is she's in more than three pages, as opposed to Fantastic Four 217, but she contributes nothing to this story. I think it's time to step to the granddaddy of them all, Dazzler 1 and 2, which I maybe think, I don't know how, but somehow I think Dazzler 1 and 2 needs to be split into Dazzler 1 to 6. And then I think it needs to be given a plot. But one and two are just so much information. And I I really, I sometimes wonder, like, I love Tom DeFalco's later work on Spider-Girl. I really genuinely think he wrote a powerful, dynamic, incredible female hero. But I, at this point in his writing, wonder if Tom DeFalco has met a woman. Okay, so I have a small theory about Dazzler one and two. And why... Oh my goodness, if I if you didn't know which hero teams of Marvel were in New York, now you know. I think these issues were meant to be marketed to people who weren't reading comics and were buying the music of Dazzler, so they have to kind of get people interested in the other comics because that's what you do, you promote everything. That is word for word the case. That is literally the exact case. What they were trying to do was get you, everyone introduced to the Avengers, the Uncanny X-Men, the Fantastic Four of who is going to be in Dazzler's life, but no one is written properly. Nothing really substantial happens. Also, I am so sorry. I, I have been told by Nico 
that the Enchantress is going to become a much more dynamic villain, and she's going to be present in Dazzler and other different heroes' stories. But, again, there's a lot of misogyny about pitting a woman against a woman, but for really almost Bechdel stupid reasons that Enchantress is upset that Dazzler sings better than her. When she's a fucking sorceress! (laughs) So... Uh, Wait, can I, can, uh, I, can I pose this question? You're trying to tell me <clears throat> that Dazzler's voice, not her powers, that her voice is so amazing and spectacular that it can break people out of Enchantress's spells? Yeah, and this is the Enchantress who a guy, like, slayed dragons to come see the Enchantress, and as soon as he gets her, he's like, oh my god, you're so beautiful, and she turns him into a tree, not a and golden we're tree. supposed to think- I know, right? And we're supposed to think she's so evil. She's just so fucking evil. And now, oh no, she's going to mess with Dazzler. If it wasn't for the fact that in the second issue, the Enchantress clarifies that if she were to use her powers at full strength, she could blow what she's trying to do, I would never, ever, ever accept Dazzler defeating the Enchantress. Ever. Under any circumstances, the Enchantress can go toe-to-toe Yeah, with I was Thor. just going to say that. She's gone toe-to-toe with Thor and... Tons of other people from Asgard. Why does she care about this woman's voice on Earth? It's really reductive of both of these women. It treats both of them like they're petty. And I understand that Dazzler doesn't have a pettiness factor in it. But Dazzler's whole concern in her life seems to be an oversimplification. Dazzler doesn't seem to have a larger understanding of her life. We're given these really weird, I want to say, excerpts of who she is. We find out that her father is a lawyer who wants her to be a lawyer. And she had like a really, I don't know, like whatever the positive version of Carrie is happened to her in high school or something. And we get these snippets, but at no point is anybody taking this character seriously yet. And she actually has so much potential already. This is not someone the X-Men tell stories about. And the fact that they just can't seem to make her be a human being devastates me at this point. It is also frustrating that while Dazzler is the one who gets the final hit against the giant ogre monster in in the second issue, I feel once again like Dazzler has to be saved by every man in the Marvel Universe. I will say, I think one of the funniest scenes is everyone changing into their costumes. I thought that was pretty funny. That everyone is just going to the bathroom, and they're all like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is one of those uh, 80s-isms, isn't it? That's sure an 80s-ism. <laughs> so, I guess my question for you, Dylan, is when you read this, and you know all of the contradictions of who Dazzler becomes versus who Dazzler is here, are you able to draw a line? where you can see that this is the start of the Dazzler we're going to come and know to love? Or are you feeling kind of like, huh, this was a waste of my time? I think I'm probably on the fence of both of those options. Uh, There's snippets of the current Dazzler in comics that these goofy little tales from way back when, you can kind of see that they helped her become the incredible hero that she is now, but... Most of these stories is cannon fodder. I, I don't feel like any of this helped her. It's hard I, to explain. I love that it didn't help her. <laughs> but I, 
there's something in that language you just used. Not that it didn't further her story. It didn't help her. This story did no one any favors. And I feel especially annoyed that this was an opportunity to have Dazzler shine on a Marvel I feel so like I'm trying to say have Dazzler dazzle on the Marvel stage and like I'm trying everything I can to find another way to put it but I really wanted to see Allison dazzle on the Marvel stage I wanted to see her show all the other heroes that she really is a badass I try to avoid spoilers as much as I can while still touching on spoilers, but Dazzler's going to do a number of unbelievably powerful feats, some of which are just about unrivaled by another mutant with similar abilities, and I really too am on that fence. Yeah, I can see hints of it, but, you know, Jonah, exactly, like, you've never read later Dazzler. This has to be kind of painful. Yeah, and I think you had a good point, and what I want to say is, I think they were trying to dip their toes in too many things they wanted Dazzler to be in to do, and I think they weren't leaning far into one or the other of, I think Dazzler can make a fantastic slice-of-life character, I know I said it before, but the idea that you have a mutant who doesn't want to be a superhero and just really wants to focus on her music career and how she can incorporate that, that's already an interesting enough story. If you just stick it with that, you can make a dynamic and interesting character. You don't have to kind of just place her in situations that I don't see Dazzler really being in, of being a hero she doesn't really want to be, that does no, or go full badass that she has to accept she has to be a hero and she really has to put music on the back line, or she has to kind of Hannah Montana it and be <laughs> the best of both worlds. She's really, she's the worst of both worlds right now, and she's not getting either of them. I've never needed anything in my life the way I now need Miley Cyrus playing Ex- Dazzler. Ex- oh, that would exactly. be It's so awesome that now I'm only going to think of Hannah Montana as Dazzler. I, I'm a huge Miley fan, and having worked in Disney World when she was there multiple times, I can vouch she's actually really kind and very respectful, and Dazzler would be played with great honesty. I can definitely tell you that. And... It's kind of with a heavy heart that I'm walking away from that two issues that debuted Dazzler's solo series, feeling kind of like, eh, I don't know that if I was in 1982, I would have picked up issue three. And I definitely wouldn't have been inclined to buy these Marvel team-ups just for her. No, and she... Yeah, but see, she's barely in the first one. No, she's just at the very end of this. Putting her makeup on, because that's what they seem like they had her do in every issue that she was in. Let's have a, a, at least one or two panels of her putting her makeup on. That's what women do. Is they All they do is they put makeup on. And I love that they tried to make it cool by like putting a Dazzler marquee on page 21, and then Dazzler's on page 22. That's not how you see that, in my opinion. And it's kind of exactly the same Spider-Man fight again, and it does all start to bleed together for me, and... You know, poor Dazzler. She deserves so much better than this. I really don't have anything to say on this Marvel team-up that we didn't already say about Amazing Spider-Man 203. I feel like, other than I actually really enjoy Paladin, I didn't get anything from this Marvel team-up. Dylan, was there anything from... So, okay. So, Dylan, something you might not be aware of is we've read so many fucking Marvel team-ups. Oh, my God! We've read, like, 20 in the last four months. So this was just kind of like, I'm just like so done with Marvel team up at this point. 
villain, did you get anything from this where you're like, yeah, I would have been happy to buy a title that I don't normally buy for this? I would not. (laughs) Um, the, The more I think about all these issues that we read for this episode for Dazzler, like you said, they all bled together. I was trying to take maybe a little few notes here or there to make sure I mentioned a few things. And when I was trying to think of different things to write down, I was like, which issue did that happen in? Because all of these stories seem like the exact same story of here's a mutant who doesn't want to be a hero. Her father was a lawyer. She puts makeup on and she falls over every once in a while. Like that's what it seemed like all of these issues were. I, I agree. It's like watching Futurama and this is single female lawyer. It's just ridiculous. Sometimes you just meet another fan and you know it's kismet. When I first met Demanda Martini, I knew I had met another X-Men fan that I had so much in common with whose views could also challenge my own to think about things a little bit differently. Whether it's her top-notch drag show or her incredible cosplays, Demanda Martini always brings a performance, a show, and she's just as much a character as any of the characters in Uncanny X-Men. Here for the first time ever, X's for Podcast is delighted to bring on Demanda Martini for your listening pleasure. Hello, my name is Demanda Martini, and I'm a DC area drag performer, cosplayer, theater artist, and all-around X-Men nerd. I am so excited to be joining the X's for Podcast family, bringing you spotlights on some characters that not may not necessarily get that spotlight while you guys are uh, reading through the story chronologically. For my first one, I wanted to talk about a character that is getting some recognition now that she is a part of the MCU, Scarlet Witch, aka Wanda Maximoff. Um, she is getting her own spinoff called WandaVision, which should be coming to the Disney Plus streaming site. So I am really excited to see what it is that they're going to be doing with this character post-Endgame. But let's talk about her beginnings. Scarlet Witch was first introduced in Uncanny X-Men number four back in 1964. She was a member with her twin brother Quicksilver in Magneto's brotherhood of evil mutants they were very reluctant members uh, mostly feeling loyalty to magneto because he had saved their lives in their native eastern europe sort of a nebulous region in the marvel universe she also originally kind of had ill-defined hex powers they were really unpredictable uncontrollable she seemed to be able to do some things with ease for example knocking over a pitcher of water into mastermind's lap when he was sort of trying to come on to her to unpredictably breaking trees causing things to start fire which is what got them in trouble and magneto needed to save them she did not last on the brotherhood for very long she did eventually quit in uncanny x-men number 11 then joining the avengers which was a huge change the avengers number four which was the start of cap's kooky quartet of scarlet witch quicksilver captain america and hawkeye all very long-standing members of the avengers and she stayed with the avengers for a very long time having just brief sort of hiatuses here and there during her time with the avengers she did become an apprentice of actual witchcraft sort of honing her powers she found that her powers had a sort of deep connection to wonder gore which uh comes into play later she also meets what 
for most people is the love of her life vision a lot of people definitely believe in that relationship however there is also already the beginnings of a love triangle with hawkeye early in their relationship but with vision they eventually did get married in giant size avengers number four back in 1975 they also then start in their own limited series which brings us up into the point that you guys are at in the story around 1982 in this limited series pretty much talking about their their time away from the avengers we find out that wanda and pietro aren't the twins of the wizard and miss america that we had previously thought but are actually the twin children of magneto and his ill-fated wife magda which was a huge revelation at the time it really sort of shook a lot of people. I know it did me when I first found, you know, found that out. So up until this point, Wanda is really starting to become her own character and not just sort of that sister that Quicksilver needs to save or that someone else needs to save. And she is sort of becoming a, a lead player in the Avengers story. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this character just because she has always been one of my favorites and one of the reasons that I continually go back to the Avengers and have been so invested in her character in the MCU. Hopefully that gives you a little backstory on this character, a little bit of a spotlight. Again, I will be coming back every few episodes to give you guys a a little glimpse into some of the history of some little known characters. And again, my name is Demand Martini. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Demand Martini. And again, I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. And yeah, enjoy. I guess it's on that note that I believe we are dazzling our way out of our very first Dazzler episode. Guys, it's been incredible getting to touch on this new corner of the Marvel Universe with two such incredible guys, and I have loved getting to share our Merry Mutant Hour with you. So, Dylan, where can everybody find you until you return to Grey Malkin Lane? You can all find me at Warpath underscore Dylan on Instagram, and you can also find me posting a whole lot in my X-Men Facebook group that is called House of X. Absolutely, guys. If you want to be part of what I think is probably the fairest, most balanced discussion group for X-Men on Facebook, I really recommend House of X. I've been a fan of the group for a long time, and it is positive, it is encouraging, it is people coming together to share love. It's a really cool time. Now, Jonah, I know that people can find you crawling all over this great network through the night, but until you return to Banff and tell us a few more things about X-Men, where can everybody find you? If you would like to, uh, please excuse us, but uh, find me razzling and dazzling about. <laughs> you can find me on. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at John Rubino and at Jonah Rubino. Nico, where can everyone so find you? I'm going to be hiding from that pun under a rock. No, you don't. But we need a hero named Razzle right now. We need a hero named Razzle. Like she needs a sidekick, right? Like, oh my god, how cool would it be if they gave Dazzler like, oh, like this is so specific, but I'm imagining. Like, giving Dazzler this really dynamic, beautiful, like, trans K-pop singer. Yes, I need her to be a psychic that can confuse people when she sings in Korean. <laughs> oh, I've never needed a hero so bad. I guess until I get to Marvel to write that hero, you guys can probably find me uh, here on the network doing a number of amazing shows with the most unbelievable cast of people. I'm so lucky to have all of these incredible contributors with me on every episode of X's for Podcast. 
as well as the expansion shows that are coming. Don't forget to keep an eye out for Thor, and we might have something amazing swinging your way later this summer. You can also find me on Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts. That has always been his last name. Talking about pop music. You can find me and my husband Kevo over on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, where I guess now it's also like Husbands Talking More or Less plus boyfriends and really good buddies. Because we've had Jonah on, we've had Joey, the incredible Joey, fearless leader who runs this place. And if you want to catch me being thoughty, you can head over to Instagram and check me out at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. If you want to read a few more comics, don't forget to check out KidRiotComics.com, where you can take a look at my inclusive, diverse superhero comic, which does not suffer from this much misogyny. All right. Well, until it's time to turn those X-Genes back on, we'll catch you guys later. See ya! See ya.